0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the propaganda saturating the state-controlled media in Russia, which portrays NATO as the aggressor, Ukraine as an American puppet, the EU an American lapdog, and the United States a divided and dysfunctional fading power. Joining us for insight into Putin's media and how the Russian people respond to it, as well as what can be done to penetrate the wall of propaganda instead of feeding it, is Peter Pomerantsev, a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Center at Johns Hopkins University. He studies propaganda and media development and has testified on the challenges of information warfare to the United States House Foreign Affairs Committee, the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the U.K. Parliament Defense Select Committee. His books include Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and most recently, This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, and he joins us to discuss his article at Time what the West will never understand about Putin's Ukraine obsession. Then, with the growing threat of political violence in our increasingly polarised society, as we head into an election that will be rigged by Republicans, which will likely spark massive protests if the election is stolen as expected, We will speak with Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government at Harvard University, whose research interests include political parties, authoritarianism and democratization, and weak and informal institutions. He is the author of Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and co-author with Daniel Ziblatt of How Democracies Die, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, America's Coming Age of Instability why constitutional crises and political violence could soon be the norm. Then finally we look into Sunday's murder of the journalist Lourdes Maldonado López in Tijuana, who had previously asked Mexico's President López Obrador for protection from death threats, and speak with Carlos Loria, the former Senior America's Programme Coordinator at the Committee to Protect Journalists, where he served as head chief strategist and spokesperson on press freedom issues in the Americas. With Mexico ranked 143 out of 180 countries in terms of press freedom, according to Reporters Without Borders, we will look into the role of the former governor of Baja California, who was sued by the reporter who was murdered after finally she was just awarded a settlement. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank our growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our non foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Peter Pomerantzap, who's a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and an author and TV producer. He studies propaganda and media development and has testified on the challenges of information war to the United States House Foreign Affairs Committee, U.S. Senate's Foreign Relations Committee, and the U.K. Parliament's Defense Select Committee, And his books include Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And most recently, This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. And he has an article at Time, What the West Will Never Understand About Putin's Ukraine Obsession. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter (laughs) Pomerantzic.
1: Thank you for the very long introduction. (laughs)
0: Well, it's all true.
1: (laughs) We like to be thorough. And in in,
0: in, in our post-truth era, it nevertheless true. So if you look at Russian media now, there's an alternative universe, of course, where NATO is the aggressor, Ukraine is a puppet of the U.S., the EU are American lapdogs, and America itself is a divided and dysfunctional, fading power. So your ideas are refreshing and overdue in as much as you think there's a way to reach out directly to the Russian people who clearly swallowing Putin's line?
1: Well, first, we don't know to what extent they're swallowing Putin's line. That's, you know, people in Russia are are deeply cynical after sort of decades of totalitarian rule and corrupt mafia states. So so this idea that they're kind of automaton's who automatically believe um, what the government feed them is simply not true. Yes, look, it, it, it's not a very complicated idea. Technically, it's something that we used to do a hell of a lot more in the Cold War. You know, we sort of lost the art of what's called public diplomacy, which is sort of speaking directly to not just to, like in ordinary diplomacy to to politicians, but to the population at large. Obviously, social media makes that really, really easy. You know, before it was very hard to get, I don't know, Reagan to speak to the Soviet people. He would do it. He even went on Russian TV once, on Soviet TV. But it was hard because there was censorship and all these things, physical censorship. Now you just set up a YouTube channel. But we don't do it anymore because we don't take Russia seriously. We've kind of lost the art of public communication. Um, We naively thought that as long as there was MTV, everybody would like America. And we thought very naively about ideas like soft power, which, which don't always work in practice. And we've just lost that knack. Um, and it's, it's difficult because there will be resistance, but it's, it's absolutely necessary because actually, I know this is hard to to get to people, but, but Putin's main motivation is domestic. Yeah. He talks about international issues, but his fixation, like every leader is domestic and, you know, we can definitely be, you know, challenging that. Well, But don't the
0: Russian people, if they're not swallowing Putin's propaganda, and obviously there's a lot of cynicism, but nevertheless, as useful as polls are, they suggest that most Russians accept the idea that the West is the aggressor here and is encroaching on Russia. I mean, here in this country, for example, you can make the case that propaganda does work because 80% of the Republican voters Support Donald Trump and believe in his uh, his lie about stop the steal. They believe that Biden is illegitimate and and Trump is the legitimate president. So if it so, works here,
1: yeah. Um, so what do we mean by 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 works? Again, be very very. I mean, I study propaganda. Be very careful when you look at polling. Qu- what we call quantitative analysis is never enough then go and talk to people. And you'll find, again, they're very, very, very nuanced. Uh, And these polls move around depending on how you frame the question. So whenever we look at propaganda research and looking at at its effectiveness, don't never, polls are the first step into a very, very long exploratory process. Now, what Russians do buy into, having lived there and back when it was still still possible to to research Russia, they do buy into a kind of a conspiratorial worldview. You know, that, that does work very well. And I do think a lot of people who follow certain media here or certain politicians will buy into a conspiratorial worldview. And we can think about the roots of that and how do we address that? Um, it's not really about epistemology or information. It's about a sense of self-empowerment agency being listened to. So the cure, weirdly, for that kind of, you know, those beliefs might not be here as the right belief. It's just starting a conversation, building trust and the conspiratorial worldview relaxes a little bit. So, you know, we're talking about human beings here, not automatons. Um, You know, we've really moved away from this idea that propaganda is an input and an output. That's something that people thought about in the 1920s, but over a hundred years of research into how we digest information has really moved us away from that. Um, So, but when we're talking about Russia, I mean, there's several things that, that, that I, you know, we need to think about. One is just having those channels of communication. And and that means thinking about who are the communicators, who are the people in the West and in America that Russians would listen to. You just start the conversation and then you'll find a lot of things emerge out of it. But it's also, it is about, by the way, communicating what the costs will be. Um, You know, Putin's great claim is that he can do anything in this world. He He can get away with anything. And it's communicated, know that there will be costs. For this invasion, it won't be a free ride. Um, then we can, you know, then we can get into these really difficult things like, what is NATO? Is NATO a threat? But I think on a much deeper level, the question, the conversation you want to have is, how do the Russian people see Russia's role in the world? Putin has sort of, you know, created this neo-imperial um, haze in the country, which is successful, by the way. I don't doubt that a lot of people do like being part of a big empire, but not all of them do, and what we really failed to do in the 1990s is talk about so what is russia's role in the world we don't want it to be an empire it has neighbors but you know what would make it comfortable so starting that conversation is something we fail to do um look it's a long process i don't think this is an overnight messaging campaign Ooh, i think russia is a, a long problem this is not something that will be solved next week um this is a, sort of a, a, in some ways a many year and decades long process and when we're talking about this kind of public diplomacy, we are talking about a decades-long kind of, kind of uh, achievement uh, aim. So, so I'm certainly not saying we can come in with a message and solve everything. It doesn't work that way.
0: So is there a way, though, to explode this idea of humiliation, which I understand, to some extent, the Russian people share that Putin is pushing? I mean, it seems that Putin, you know, he's stoking nationalism as a way to distract people from his own kleptocracy. I mean, he seems to be incredibly skilled at s- screwing with America. Maybe that goes back to his KGB training, the the, the kind of glavny protivnik main adversary kind of mindset. But he's not very good about taking care of the Russian people. Is there any way to point that out, that his focus is on the main enemy as opposed to making life better for the Russian people because of the enormous amount of looting that's going on with the Siloviki and the oligarchs.
1: So without a doubt, and of course that's the, the people inside Russia who point that out, like Alexei Navalny, get get punished accordingly. Um, that's a huge theme and, and that's something Russians know and 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 are very unhappy about. Um, I mean, there's many other ways to make that more concrete. I mean, things like medicine and health um, and, and lots and lots of, other issues where sort of the elites get one level of service and often go to the West, by the way, to get their health, you know, to get their health treatment, uh, while ordinary Russians can't. So there's lots of, not just like, you know, not just abstractly they're stealing, but really kind of specific issues that people care about. Also, by the way, there's a real kind of, I use the word very loosely, schizophrenia in Russia's attitude to the West and to America. Yes, yes, it is. It's kind of the big enemy that you want as your enemy so you feel respected. But actually, there's a huge amount of genuine cultural admiration for America. Jealousy is where you want to send your kids to study. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a very, very complex and, 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 you know, contradictory relationship. And the Russian people still love watching American movies and American TV shows and et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's not like, you know, it's not like this sort of deep ideological hatred. Um, It's a kind of a a love, a love hate thing that's going on. So that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to reach out. There's a lot of, you know, Western American spokespeople that Russians will listen to, maybe grudgingly, maybe suspiciously, but they will listen to them because they're part of their imagination. I mean, you know, we can, we can throw some names around and we can have some fun and be a bit silly, but, you know, you know, a senior general or a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger will definitely get the Russians' attention. Um, you know, and these are people they admire and respect.
0: As opposed to Steven Seagal?
1: See, the, the Rus- Russians don't respect traitors. <laughs> <laughs> any any Western who goes to Russia and becomes, you know, a satrap of the Russian state is, is you know, that, that, nobody respects that. It's like, it's like the defectors, the British defectors who came to Russia they thought they'd be heroes. No one respected them. No, no, mm-hmm. you, respect the, <laughs> you right. respect the enemy. General Schwarzkopf would have been perfect. Someone like that. Someone like, you know, someone very, very gruff. Maybe the the Russians like that. You know, someone like that, that. I think they'd listen to.
0: Well, what about the chances of restoring Russian democracy, which Putin has dismantled? I mean, as far as I can tell, the Communist Party is the only opposition that's making a comeback in Russia. <laughs> yeah. But the point about Putin, surely, is that he's a former KGB guy, and I think he successfully turned Russia into a a security state. I mean, the KGB seemed, or the FSB and the SVR, seemed to dominate Russia. I'm not sure the KGB ever went away, frankly. But isn't it basically about the security organizations which are primarily loyal to the state as opposed to the people? So given that... Dichotomy is there any way you can drive a wedge between that, between those that support the state, and as as you point out in your article, you know S- Stalin was perfectly happy to kill the Russian people in order to maintain the power of the state. So the history of cruelty is there.
1: So well, yeah, obviously, and and you know more recently, and you know the, the raising of cross in Aleppo, it's it's a bit, it's, it's 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 a culture with with deep deep spurts of of quite violent aggression so when we look at social change political change in russia historically the people are very important but that's not how it really works um it's virtually always palace coups so whether it's perestroika which is one form of palace coup or all the multitudes of palace coups over the history of russia putin's fear is not the people play an important role because the palace coup has to get the people on side but Putin really doesn't believe in people powered revolutions anywhere. You know when he sees one abroad, he thinks it's the CIA. I think that's relatively genuine. you know that 's how he sees the world and if it 's going to happen domestically, what he 's looking at and this may well be the wellsprings of all his behavior is outside the circle of five people that he trusts, and it literally is five or six people from the 1990s that he trusts. Who is going to betray him? You know That's how change happens in Russia. So that's very important when we think about his behavior now. In the West, we tend to think of his behavior as informed by geopolitics and changing the world order. Now, he's obviously very much into that, the way that the leader of any big power is. And maybe he dresses up in the evening as Peter the Great and, and gets his girlfriend to dress up as Ukraine and play sex games. I don't know. You may well, you know, there is definitely a sort of like imperial obsession. However, it could well be that what drives his behavior rather than his attitudes is this very, very, very concrete nonstop paranoia that there's a palace coup in the offing. That's always been what how change happens in Russia. And so, yes, he's got to make sure that he creates no conditions for a palace coup. And one thing, of course, is, is keeping the attention and also the country's energies on a kind of, you know, reality show version of the Cold War um, or potential imperial expansions like, like, like in Crimea. So, so, yes, the people are very important, but what Putin is, it's the people because there might be a palace coup rather than people power a priori that that Putin cares about.
0: But are there other power centers that he has to navigate? Because my my sense of what's happening with Ukraine is that maybe Putin is torn between the oligarchs who have all their billions parked abroad and don't want to be cut off from the SWIFT system. And uh, on the other hand, you've got the Russian military-industrial complex who would like to get back the factories in Ukraine that make key components to their military equipment, uh, and also these hawkish generals, along with Nikolai Petrushev, who's there as his national security advisor. So mm. is he navigating between those countervailing uh, forces?
1: And, and and maybe the ones in his own head, which are those countervailing forces. Um, you know, those are all could be voices that, that he's, he's going around his own head. Sure, without a doubt. I, I wouldn't put the military too high. The military in Russia... Are not respected by by this lot. They, these guys are KGB guys. They never respected the military. They look down on them. So I don't think the military. The military might say the military expect, by the way, being cautious. The military, I like any military, before a risky operation, going, um, sir, this is really risky. Um, that's their job. <laughs> like the military here before Iraq or something, like, are we sure? So I don't. I doubt actually the military would be the ones pushing this, but yes, could well be the kind of imperial lusting bits of of the people around him or or in his own head you know all these voices could be in his own head versus the sort of kgb businessman types who are like whoa this is very very risky i i wouldn't i'd be surprised if the army has a big say that would be a real change for these guys so i
0: I recently spoke with christopher shivitz who was until recently with the national intelligence officer in charge of europe And he was suggesting that there are forces in Russia that would be perfectly happy to have a new Cold War. And I'm trying to sort of identify who they might be, if indeed he's right.
1: Well, what do we mean by a new Cold War? I mean, yes, they definitely... I think there are many who want the theatrics of it. Yeah, of course. I think Putin would love Reykjavik and Cuban Missile. Well, this kind of is our Cuban Missile crisis. So without a doubt, they... I think all of them want the status that comes with great power games. Whether they are ready to cut off their economy to a great extent, whether they're ready to limit travel, whether they're ready, you know, all the reality of a Cold War set of rules, whether they're ready for that, I'm less certain. It doesn't sound like them. The KGB never liked the Cold War, as you know. The KGB never liked the ideology. The KGB never liked the rigidity and the stupidity of it. That's inelegant and just kind of not playful enough in some way. They never liked the guys from the, you know, they never liked the guys from the party. It was always the party who were ideological and the KGB who were like, oh no, no, let's play. So I don't know. I'm not sure how many ideological people there are.
0: But isn't it at the heart of the problem with Ukraine for, russia is that what russia offers to these countries that they you know would like to get back into this orbit they offer gangster government like lukashenko in belarus these people in ukraine and and the baltics and other countries that used to be under the part of the warsaw pact they want democracy and the rule of law so at the end of the day i don't see how putin can win certainly in terms of the hearts and minds, because people don't want gangster government.
1: I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And and they want a sense of the future. And they want their kids to look better than them. And they want, I know, it's a very, very unfashionable thing to think about in Washington these days, but they, they actually understand what people mean by the word dignity. I think we've probably forgotten a bit here because we're have a lot of rights but if you have no rights having a a few rights matters a lot and living in a world where psychologically you're not humiliated every day matters a lot um so all those things matter and yeah no that's why that's why so many of these countries are are sort of like some fast some slowly some in higgledy-piggledy ways moving away um, and, and, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether that long historical process, which is very observable is one that Putin cares enough to inform his actions. I think that we have to be very careful to disaggregate Putin's thoughts, which I'm sure he thinks about these things and whether that informs reckless behavior, you know, do you then start a crazy war with unintended consequences? because of that overall historical insight. And I think that's where we're, we don't know. We don't understand what his attitudes are might not be the key, what what matters are his behaviours. So so uh, yes, of course he, he sees that and of course he's annoyed by that and of course he wants to slow that down. Whether you then risk destroying your economy, hmm, I don't know.
0: Well, just in closing though, do you think, for example, in the case of Ukraine, that Putin honestly believes that It was all the coup, the colored revolution, was conducted by the CIA, as opposed to the fact that the Ukrainian people got sick of this crook and kleptocrat Yanukovych, who again represents gangster government. That's what Putin exports. That's his political model. So is he able to understand that his political model is the problem?
1: Um, That's a very, very good question. I think two things, w- one thing, he does have a genuinely, I mean, the conspiratorial worldview that says people don't have agency, that everything is always manipulated from somewhere, goes very deep among those guys. You know, Putin was always very paranoid and very conspiratorial way before he was powerful. So that would only have been augmented. So I think conspiracy as a kind of default for explaining the world, I think i think that that's embedded as a mindset. When we talk about genuine belief, though, I think I think one of the things one learns when one lives in Russia for a long time is that the question, do you genuinely believe, is not a relevant question. It's a very Western question to ask, because we're asked as kids, what do you really believe? You know, we think about belief as, as something coherent that informs our actions and our personality. If you grew up in the late Soviet Union... You already said you believed in communism, but didn't believe in it. You didn't go through an educational system that ever asked you, what do you think? That's not how that system works. You're meant to repeat stuff by rote and, and say it. Yeah, No one asks you through an essay, a personal essay, like they do in the U S explaining your path. I mean, that's an absurd idea um, for in the Russian system. So, and, and since then that's only multiplied. So you're always playing games. You're always putting on different masks, And the idea of what you really believe is just not something that enters the the kind of the lexicon of survival in many ways. It's not that doesn't help you survive to really believe something. So it's a a very Western question to ask, what do you really believe? And you you learn to stop asking it after a while in Russia. People can genuinely be anti-Western like Mr. Lavrov, the foreign minister, and genuinely put all their money in the West. They can genuinely... Uh, 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 you know, say that the West is uh, a a curse on on civilization, and genuinely send your kids to study there. And all those things are happening at the same time. And that's something sometimes hard for people to get their heads around. In America, where we invest so much into the self as this coherent package, um, Orwell called a double thing. I'm not the first person to know to notice how it's a function of authoritarian regimes.
0: Well, Peter Pomerantz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Peter Pomerantseff, who's a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University, and an author and TV producer. He studies propaganda and media development and has testified on the challenges of information war to the United States House Foreign Affairs Committee, the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the U.K. Parliament's Defense Select Committee. And his books include Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and most recently, This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, And he has an article at Time: What the West Will Never Understand About Putin's Ukraine Obsession. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the growing threat of political violence in our increasingly polarized society. Mother, should I trust the government? And joining us now is Stephen Levitsky, who is a professor of government at Harvard University. His research interests include political parties, authoritarianism, and democratization, and weaken informal institutions, with a focus on Latin America. He's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and co author with Daniel Ziblatt of How Democracies Die. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs America's Coming Age of Instability why constitutional crises and political violence could soon be the norm. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Levitsky. Thanks for having me. So, Stephen, the good news is that uh, the United States is not heading towards Putin's Russia or Orban's Hungary, but it could be heading into a period of constitutional crises and political violence. And it would seem to me that The preparations are already underway, fairly manifest and quite comprehensive in terms of voter suppression at all levels with gerrymandering, meaning that the Republicans could pick up the House before one vote is cast, and then on election day, all kinds of voter suppression across the country. And Then on the days after, many Republican states will have the ability to count the vote and certify it, and if they don't like it, change it. And then, of course, you've got at the precinct level, Steve Bannon's precinct strategy of the kind of cyber ninjas that we saw in Arizona, partisans taking over the machinery of counting the votes at the local level. So it's happening across the board. But what I find even more disturbing is that Ron DeSantis's Florida, for example, they passed a law which means that only if, if a few Democrats gather to protest, you can drive a pickup into the crowd and be immune from prosecution so it's almost as if DeSantis is already expecting political violence and is prepared to exonerate Republicans who attack Democrats am I being a little paranoid here or this is the writing on the wall
2: well I think you have uh, listed the array of threats pretty well and the 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 combination of those of those various threats gerrymandering, um, voter suppression, in particular, I think, manipulation, politicization of the electoral administration, which uh, US, the U.S. system is is really vulnerable. Most established democracies in the world, uh, in Europe and Latin America, have independent agencies that administer elections. These uh, elections are run by civil servants, by independent professionals. They're not run by partisan tax, either elected or appointed Uh, in the United States. We have a a system that is very, very vulnerable to partisan capture. Um, We've depended for decades on the the goodwill um, and the good faith of um, of election officials rather than than actual oversight. And so the the system is vulnerable to to capture, to politicization, to potentially to, to stealing. All of that is true um what i think sometimes some analysis or some of and, and so it, it's it's entirely possible entirely possible that we will have a, uh, a a stolen election either at the state level in 2022 and possibly at the federal level in 2024. that though doesn't mean that we're headed for stable autocracy what it means is is democracy is could could, could very well be derailed What happens next is a lot less clear. And um, what I think some, including some Republicans who are plotting to steal the election, um, may be underestimating is the degree of protest, of of chaos and of instability that that could trigger. I don't think that opponents of the Republican Party, that opponents of Trumpism will take a stolen election uh, line down the way, for example, that a stolen Supreme Court seat was was taken lined down in 2016.
0: So if in 2022 there's massive voter suppression and vote rigging on election day, people are lining up forever, they find either they can't vote or once they do vote, their vote is stolen. There is an, obviously an expectation of anger there. And as I mentioned, there's already Ron DeSantis and others are, <laughs> are preempting that by banning demonstrations. So if that's the case, and that is a likely scenario, my understanding is that the only way the Democrats are going to win now that they've failed in the Senate, thanks to Mansion and Cinema, is by a massive turnout. If the playing field is stacked against them, isn't the only chance they have a massive turnout? And if you have a lot of people showing up at the polls, finding that either they can't vote or when they do vote, their vote is stolen. Isn't that a incendiary mix? Yeah,
2: unfortunately, we are in a position um, where, where the playing field is already is already tilted, and not only in the ways that you mentioned. Um, the elect and it, uh, what I'm about to say is not actually the Republicans doing it, the Republicans' fault, but our electoral rules heavily favor sparsely populated territories. And because uh, over the last couple of decades, our parties have in the United States have lined up increasingly along urban rural lines, the Republicans are the party of sparsely populated territories. The the Democrats are the party of the big cities. That means that our electoral system, particularly the Senate, but also to some degree, the House and the Electoral College uh, are all Tilted in favor of the Republican Party, again, through no fault of their own. And so um, the Democrats are 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 fighting uphill. The, the, the studies show the Democrats need to win by f- about four percentage points to win the Electoral College. They have to win by a little more than four percentage points to capture a majority in the Senate. Uh, our electorals rules now now create a system of um, essentially minority rule. Um, so it's 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 not just voter suppression. It's not just gerrymandering. Our electoral rules are also stacked against the Democrats. So yes, we're we have a system right now. We have a situation where Democrats must massively mobilize each election, like they did in 2018, like they did in 2020. The, um, they need to do it again in 2022 to have a chance. They need to do it again in 2024 to have a chance. And that is that's just that's really exhausting. It's very hard. For activists to mobilize in to mobilize heroically at every election. That that's that's too much to ask of um, small D democratic activists.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Stephen levitsky he's a professor of government at Harvard University, whose research interests include political parties, authoritarianism and democratization, and weak and informal institutions with a focus on Latin America. He's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War and co-author with Daniel Zyblat of How Democracies Die, and he has an article in Foreign Affairs, America's Coming Age of Instability, Why Constitutional Crises and Political Violence Could Soon Be the Norm. And Stephen Levitsky, in your article at Foreign Affairs, America's Coming Age of Instability, Why Constitutional Crises and Political Violence Could Soon Be the Norm, you mentioned the likelihood that we could have a situation similar to Northern Ireland during the Troubles. But, of course, the British army came in to kind of referee or break that up, if you will, eventually. And they brought about, through U.S. intervention, I might add, they brought about a solution there to the Troubles, even though things are still a little volatile. But nevertheless, it had an outside force that was able to bring about stability. What No such force exists in this country except perhaps the U.S. military, and we've just learned that one of the crazy things Trump was trying to do at the end, there was a a draft uh, executive order to basically dragoon the Pentagon into seizing voting machines. So what do you think could be in terms of the analogy with Northern Ireland? What could intervene to stop civil strife in the aftermath of a stolen election?
2: Well, it would have to be law enforcement... Officials. Um, it would have to be some combination of army, national guard, police forces, and federal agents like like the FBI. Now, most of our law enforcement agencies are pretty professionalized. There, there, um, you know, there is some evidence of efforts to uh, infiltrate police forces. There's no question that, particularly at the level of, of police unions, um, there there is a presence of Extremist and, and even white nationalist forces, but pretty clear that that most of our our of our security forces have not been captured by the extreme right. So as uh, the the role of the British in Northern Ireland would have to be played by the U.S. state by by U.S. law enforcement agencies of various types, and I think that there's a there's a pretty good chance that that um, that our law enforcement agencies are up to the task, that they can do it, which is not to say there will not be sporadic and 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 often quite ugly violence. What will get really dangerous is if our police forces get captured by, by white supremacists, as as was the case, for example, in the U.S. South during the Jim Crow period. When that happens, we're in real trouble.
0: Well, there are indications that that could happen, but. The GOP, which is now controlled by Trump, it's his his party, 80% of them are embracing the big lie, which says that basically Biden is illegitimate and that Trump is the true president. And there was a recent study from the University of Chicago that found that 22 million Americans feel that violence will be necessary to restore Trump to his rightful place in the White House. So and then you add to that mix about 400 million guns in the hands of private citizens. Again, you have an extremely volatile situation.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I think we have to um, take with some caution survey responses uh, about sort of the necessity of violence. It's it's a lot easier to say that violence is necessary than to actually pick up one of those 400 million guns and, and, and use it. There, there's, there's a, it's a big step from applying to in a survey that you think violence is necessary. It's a big step from there to actually engaging in violence. But I think you're right, it's a volatile situation. I, I don't think we're going to see massive, large scale violence, uh, armies of, of white supremacists taking up arms. But the likelihood, and we've already seen in the last uh, handful of years, uh, we, we, in, the, in, in 2020, we experienced as a country, I think, four political deaths, people killed at political rallies. Um, I think that at, at, w- whether it's it it's reaches Northern Ireland levels or not, the likelihood of decentralized intermittent acts of violence, whether it's street violence, thuggishness, bombings, or even assassination attempts. I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty likely.
0: So you mentioned here in your article, uh, Stephen, that uh, according to a 2018 survey, nearly 60% of Republicans say they feel like a stranger in their own country. And there's a lot of white grievance out there that Trump is, he got elected largely on white grievance, Uh, and he continues to stoke that at his most recent rally in Arizona. He said that white people are being put at the back of the line in terms of being treated for COVID, which, of course, is a pernicious lie. So is there any way to neutralize that feeling of alienation amongst Republicans who feel that they can't handle multiculturalism and the demographic changes underway and that they sort of want to return to a kind of atavistic period of Ozzy and Harriet, where Blacks and Latinos were invisible. Obviously, to some extent, back in the Reagan days, they also appealed to that kind of atavism. And Make America Great Again is inherently an appeal to that atavism.
2: Yeah, I don't have a, a great answer to that question. We are in uncharted territory in terms of a uh, being a democracy in which a Basically, founding and dominant majority, um, an ethnic group that was um, not only an electoral majority but socially dominant for 200 years, loses that majority and loses that dominant role. This is this is really uncharted territory, and I think that is I think you put your finger on the the crux of what's going on: the the, the radicalization, the polarization, the 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 violence that is. Um, that's occurring in the United States today is primarily a reaction to this to this change, to the advent, to the rise, to the inevitable rise, I should say, of uh, of a more diverse society and a, and a multiracial democracy. Um, I don't I don't think there's a, a single policy or set of policies or program that's going to be able to flitch, flip a switch and turn that fear and anger off. Uh, I do think that Republican political leaders can play a role and that media leads can play a role. And the 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 irresponsibility of Republicans like Ron DeSantis or um, I'm not going to say Trump because I don't know that Trump knows better. But Ron DeSantis knows better. And a, a number of Republican politicians and media figures like Tucker Carlson know better. They know what they're doing. And yet they are continuing to um to foster, to reinforce these white grievance. Uh, And also the very large, even larger number of Republicans who are simply shutting up, who are not, who who know much better, who privately wring their hands about the things that Trump or DeSantis or Tucker Carlson are saying or doing, but who do not have the chutzpah to stand up and and speak to it and denounce it. If Republican elites, if right-wing media elites were to denounce white supremacist or uh, white nationalist ideology or, or, or practice, it would, it would make a, a, a difference, at least at the margins. But they're allowing it to grow, and that's really dangerous.
0: So just in closing, you mentioned Tucker Carlson. He has been featured a lot on Russian state TV, which is all <clears throat> largely pro-Putin propaganda, controlled by Putin. They put Tucker Carlson on because he's actually supporting the Russian position on Ukraine. And then when you try to analyze that, the only, th- only explanation is that what Carson and Steve Bannon and others that admire Putin is that they admire Putin because he has, he's a white supremacist and he has an alliance with the, uh, the Orthodox Church and he's opposed to multiculturalism, diversity, and the LGBTQ community, etc. And that seems to be this compact. So is there a way that you can make the case that Trump is the gift that keeps on giving to Putin because what Russian state media is saying about America now is that America is a fading and failed, dysfunctional, divided country. Well, it's largely divided because of Trump. And we still don't know the extent to which Putin is, as the former director of national intelligence says, Vladimir Putin is Donald Trump's case officer. So can you make the case that America is being manipulated into further division by a malign foreign power. I would phrase it a little bit differently.
2: Uh, I wouldn't overstate the, the the role that Russia has had in all of this, um, which is not to say Putin hasn't tried, hasn't done exactly what you said. But Trump, Trump didn't divide America. Trump is a symptom and a product of a divided America. Um, uh, America's divisions fundamentally are uh, about what we were talking about a minute ago which is a a, a reaction against uh, this becoming a more diverse and, and racially equal society And Putin b- both Trump and Putin took advantage of that and uh, tr- Putin has been able to I mean Putin's not wrong when his state television casts us as a deeply divided uh, dysfunctional, democracy. And he's he's taken advantage of that. I think Democrats, small d Democrats of all types in the United States and and really patriots in the United States need to respond um, much more forcefully in pointing out that there are now elements of the Republican Party who prefer Putin, who prefer the Russian government to American citizens, to 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 the Democrats. And that's that is a really dangerous place to be. And when we face uh, a pretty pretty significant foreign policy or geopolitical challenge from Russia. When you, see, when you see elements of the Republican Party lining up beyond the other guys, that that's
0: something Democrats really need to,
2: to denounce.
0: Well, Stephen Levitsky, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Levitsky, he's a professor of government at Harvard University, whose research interests include political parties, authoritarianism and democratization, and weak and informal institutions, with a focus on Latin America. He's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and co-author with Daniel Zyblatt of How Democracies Die, and he has an article in Foreign Affairs, America's Coming Age of Instability, Why Constitutional Crises and Political Violence Could Soon Be the Norm. We can take a brief station break and back looking into Sunday's murder of the journalist Lourdes Maldonado Lopez in Tijuana, who had previously asked Mexico's president Lopez Obrador for protection from death threats.
3: Make-a-make-a-
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Carlos Loria, who worked for over a decade as a senior America's program coordinator at the Committee to Protect Journalists, where he served as chief strategist and spokesperson on press freedom issues in the Americas, monitoring and documenting press freedom violations in Latin America. He was recently the team manager of the free and safe journalism portfolio at the Open Society Foundation's program on independent journalists. And he has led missions to Mexico, Colombia, Guatemala, Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Haiti, Brazil, El Salvador, and Argentina. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carlos Loria.
4: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Well, thanks for joining us again, Carlos. And the murder of the journalist Lourdes Maldonado Lopez on Sunday in Tijuana has really rocked the journalistic community, obviously, in Mexico. But even on social media, there's an enormous number of people moved by a picture of her dog sitting on her doorstep behind the police tape that has surrounded the house, which is now a crime scene. Now... Back in 2019, this same journalist at a press conference with, held by Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador at his daily press briefing said to AMLO that she feared for her life and that she wanted his support, help, and labor justice. And when she was referring to labor justice, she was talking about the dispute that she had with Jaime Benilla. Manila, who was a press owned a big press outfit that she worked for, and that she had sued that company for unfair dismissal. As it happens, Benila went on to become the governor of Baja California, and he recently had to settle with her, and then suddenly she gets killed. And now AMLO, the president of Mexico, is telling the Mexican press not to link uh, her murder. To vanilla, so what do you make of all this?
4: Well, I think that you know, it's, it's really uh, troubling to know that you know, um, a couple of years ago, the journalist who was uh, killed recently had asked the president for support, right? And now she ended, uh, she ended up dead. Yeah. At the same time, it's it's important to point out that. Bonilla himself has expressed that he didn't know why López had asked President uh, López Obrador for protection and added that there was never a threat, not even an argument with her. So it's important to to say that and to say that press freedom groups, both in Mexico and internationally, are are looking into this and uh, requesting authorities for a thorough investigation. But it's important to put this in context because this is the third journalist to be killed in Mexico in the last two weeks after a deadly year for the press. 2021 was a year where um, journalists had more journalists killed than any other country in the world. According to press freedom groups, the community of journalists and reporters without borders, article 19, at least nine journalists were killed in 2021. And I think that after a decade of deadly violence and impunity, Mexico has a full blown free expression crisis is more than a press freedom crisis. This is a a problem that is not only affecting journalists, but it's affecting the Mexican society in general. Because these are are rights that are enshrined in the Mexican Constitution, but unfortunately thousands of Mexicans, including journalists, are not not able to fully exercise those rights. Because, you know, they are killed with impunity, threatened with death, and, uh, you know, they are they are self-censoring at the same time. So many of the issues that are affecting the daily lives of Mexicans are gone unreported because journalists are terrified. Um, as a wave of violence never ends. I uh, worked for the committee... De- to protect journalists for over 15 years. And uh, I saw, you know, when in the early 2000s, this wave of unprecedented violence started to escalate and it has not, unfortunately, it has not ended after, you know, more than 15 years.
0: And you Um, mentioned that this was the third journalist killed in Mexico. There was a journalist stabbed to death in Veracruz. And then less than a week ago in Tijuana, the same place where Lourdes Maldonado López was shot, another photojournalist, uh, Margarita Martinez, was shot in the head outside of his Tijuana home. So there's something going on in Tijuana, surely.
4: I mean, there's there's something going on everywhere in Mexico, I will say, you know, as, as, you know, organized crime has taken over parts of the country. In many places, uh, they have colluded, you know, the law enforcement and the judiciary. It's a very, very serious, serious crisis. Unfortunately, efforts to fight against this wave of violence have clearly been insufficient the uh, justice system is both overburdened and dysfunctional and clearly has not been able to solve uh, and provide justice to you know the the families of, of, of those journalists killed and many and many of those who have disappeared because that's the other problem you know that you have in Mexico, uh, like any other country, unlike any other country in the world, dozens of journalists that have disappeared in the last 50 years, and they they banished. Most of them are fear dead. Unfortunately, this is this is a problem, again, that that is really limiting the ability of Mexicans to engage in a in a debate in a discussion about the main issues that are affecting the life of, of, of Mexicans, ordinary Mexicans. And, and, and that is the cornerstone of democracy. So unless Mexico finds a way to deal with with this issue of deadly violence and endless impunity, the Mexican democracy is gonna to continue to suffer, is going to continue to be an unhealthy democracy and people are going to be deprived of vital information that they need to make informed decisions.
0: Uh, well, I don't know that um, President López Abrador first of all, I'm not sure that his hands-off attitude to organized crime in the sense that he wanted to stop the massive bloodletting as a result of the war on, on drugs, etc., and these wars between these cartels, etc., but it doesn't seem like he's a particularly successful president frankly and all he had to say about this horrible murder of this a journalist who had appealed to him for protection was he said what happened is very regrettable so do you expect him to do something
4: uh, i mean there was a lot of hope when when he was sworn in over 3 years ago about you know, he he, um, he um, became president with support of many journalists in the in the media community. Unfortunately, it has been very disappointing to see, and very disappointment to very disappointing to um, follow. You know how the same situation um, has persisted for years. Right? The president said there's no impunity. Impunity—it's uh, over ninety-five percent.
0: You mean only five percent of crimes get solved? Is that what you mean?
4: Yeah, they are not getting solved. 95 percent of the crimes are not getting solved.
0: So it's almost—you
4: know—a hundred. It's almost total impunity. No, mm-hmm. I think he's on the defensive, where he goes on daily press conferences in the morning and says that. He's different from the other, from the previous administrations, because there's no impunity. There's almost total impunity, Mr. Obrador. And not only that, you know, I was in Mexico a couple of years ago with a mission of international organizations, presidential organizations. All the main organizations were there together with uh, the, the local groups and journalists from the the most dangerous areas. And, you know, the journalists were very worried about a trend that has since then increased, which was the president himself calling out journalists who will criticize his policies, stigmatizing journalists for the criticism. And bots and trolls from the, you know, Um, people close to his circle, you know, attacking uh, those journalists that, you know, were critical of his administration. And, you know, the reality is that the López Obrador's administration has not taken effective steps um, to combat these threats. And this is not a threat again. This is not a threat that can go lightly because it is endangering the Mexican democracy. Uh, I I met presidents from Vicente Fox to Felipe Calderón to Enrique Peña Nieto when I was at CPJ. And all of them understood the magnitude of the crisis, which has since ballooned and become a full-blown free expression crisis, right? right? And they all understood and they take minimal steps, but none of them put the full will and the full political will of the of their administrations behind the threat. We, you know, we kind of agreed with um, Peña Nieto and with former President Peña Nieto, former President Calderón, that without prioritizing impunity, deadly violence, the Mexican democracy will suffer and will, will 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 be weakened. And I think they understood, but the magnitude of the problem is so huge that you know, if they not take decisive steps, if they not put the full political will of the administration behind this problem, They are not going to stop. This is not going to stop. And I think that many people have said that there's no um, silver bullet, there's no easy solution to this problem because the Mexican cartels are are, are working in collusion with authorities in many states. They, They have taken over territory, they control. Uh, government agencies, they control law enforcement agencies, uh, and 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 they are so powerful. They have so many resources. They have heavy weapons, weapons that are sometimes overwhelming, not only for the federal police but for the military. That this this is a huge problem, and unfortunately, the Lopez uh, uh, Obrador administration have only use rhetoric to tackle this issue. And that's, unfortunately, the results can be seen today. Uh, I hope that there will be at some point uh, a decision being made at the top level that this has to be a priority.
0: Well, Carlos Loria, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
4: I very much appreciate uh, that. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Carlos Lauria, who worked for over a decade as the Senior America's Program Coordinator at the Committee to Protect Journalists, where he served as the Chief Strategist and Spokesperson on Press Freedom Issues in the Americas, monitoring and documenting press freedom violations in Latin America. He was recently the Team Manager of the Free and Safe Journalism Portfolio at the Open Society Foundation's Program on Independent Journalists and he has led missions to Mexico, Colombia, Guatemala, Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Haiti, Brazil, El Salvador, and Argentina. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org
3: i